0: If you brought your Bibles tonight, and I hope that you have, turn with me back in the Old Testament to the book of Numbers, <clears throat> Numbers um, chapter 13. I want to read to you just a few verses out of Numbers chapter 13? Um, we probably, by all rights, probably could read the whole chapter, uh, but uh, I'm just going to take starting at verse 25 through verse 33. And uh, anyways, and, and, and I'll try to fill you in on the rest of what you need to know. And, and uh, this is a lot of good stuff going on here in Numbers, a lot of interesting stuff. If you've not read it in a while, you ought to take some time this evening or this week sometime to refresh your mind on it. But anyways, in Numbers chapter 13, I want to start at verse uh, 25. I'll give you just a moment long, longer to find the book of Numbers. Um, Numbers chapter 13. Beginning at verse 25. And it says, And they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel, unto the wilderness of uh, Paran, to Kadesh, and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, we came unto the land whither uh, thou sentest us. And surely it floweth with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land. And the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. It, the Am- Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which uh, we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of of the giants." And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just humbly come before you here this evening. We thank you, Lord, for the good day and for the many blessings. We thank you for the opportunity you've given us to gather here tonight. We thank you, Lord, for our church family. We thank you, Lord, for each one who made the effort to come out tonight. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the nation that we live in. Every blessing, uh, every breath that we draw, it's a gift from you. We thank you for the many blessings that you poured out on us. But we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus, Lord God, that you give him so that we might have life. And Lord, we just pray as we go forward here tonight. I know there's requests. I know there is needs. I know each one of us is struggling with things. I know that there's things that we're probably not even willing to openly ask for prayer about. I know that there's things that you know that we're going to face that we don't even know that is coming. But God, you know every one of them. There is nothing that is hidden from you. There is nothing that is a surprise to you. God, you know each one that is sitting here. You know where we're at. You know what is going on in our our life. so lord my prayer th- tonight is that you would meet each one of us right where we're at god that you would meet each meet Lord, that you would encourage us, that you'd lift us up, that you'd strengthen us. God, that you'd draw us near to you. Lord, that we might leave here. And even though we've come in uh, and we have probably have thought about things and uh, uh, that trouble us and we've battles to face and our own giants that are what appears to be giants ahead of us. But God, let every one of us leave here tonight saying that we have been in the house of God, that we have met with you and we have worshipped here tonight. So God, my prayer is that you just have your way, you just continue to have your way and your will in our service here tonight and in our midst. God, move as only you can move, and we'll give you the glory for it. Lord, if there is any among us here tonight that's not saved, my hope is that everyone here is saved, but I don't know that, but you do. And so Lord, if there's any among us that's not saved, Or maybe any that's backslidden or just not sure where they stand with you or not on firm ground. Lord, let tonight be the night that you'd shake them, that you'd wake them, that you'd convict them, and they'd repent and and get things right with you, get things sure, get things firmed up before it's too late. Lord, I'm asking that you'd have your way and will in the heart and in the mind of each one that is here tonight. And my prayer is that we would be open and we'd be receptive and we would hear what you would say by your spirit tonight. And Lord, let me ask one more thing. I can't preach without you, and I know that. I feel, Lord, every time I stand here, I feel that I am inadequate, ill-prepared. Lord, I just feel like that I know, lest you give me it to say I've got nothing Worth saying. So, Lord, I'm asking that you'd clear my mind of everything except for your thoughts, your message, your words, what you'd have me to speak tonight. And, Lord, just to be sure that I don't mess anything up, I'm asking that you'd place the very words you'd have me to say on my tongue tonight and help it to just roll right on off, Lord, my desire is to preach from my spirit to their spirit, Lord, tonight. to Be your messenger to please you and bring you glory. So Lord, I'm asking that you'd preach me one more time here tonight and I'll be sure and give you every bit of the glory for it. God, have your way and your will in our midst. Let your presence be known and be felt here. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We praise your holy name. We ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. I want to preach to you tonight about choices. Um, We... I heard somebody say one time, and I, I tried to remember who it was, Now, I don't know. I, I'd give them credit if I could. But we choose our joys and sorrows long before we ever experience them. It is the choices that we make in life that determine whether in the future we will reap joy or we will reap sorrow, right? I mean, you sow and then you reap what you sow. And so the choices that we make today, right, decide what we reap in the future, whether it is sorrow or whether it is joy. Life is made up of choices hear me that now i, I and i'm i thinking of the young people and talking to them this morning uh, or this evening but i'm also thinking of all ages right we've got choices that we make every day and life is made up of choices and and and, and some choices they create i don't know how else to describe it but like little ripples right uh, that that some of them hardly alter the landscape of life at all but some of them are like huge waves that have the power to completely change uh, our entire life right to completely change our future someone once said life is the sum total of all of our choices I'd say that's pretty smart and that's probably right but I don't know that for sure but here's what I do know for sure Where you spend eternity is the result of the choice that you make of what you are going to do with Christ. Every one of us, and I believe every soul uh, throughout all the world at some point or another is faced with the reality of Christ and they have to make the choice to either receive Him or reject Him. And where they spend eternity depends on the choice that they make. I look at this set of scriptures here that I read to you. And it, it, to me and in my mind, Caleb is the focus here. Caleb is the one that stands out. Caleb, I believe, made three choices that I think are worthy of us talking about tonight. Let me give you just a little bit of background in case you don't remember. If you will remember, if you will go back to the book of Genesis, uh, you will see that um, God made a promise to a man by the name of Abraham, calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees. He makes a promise to him and to his wife, which this is a couple that is unable to have children, but he promises that from him, from his descendants, will come a mighty nation, a nation that is innumerable, right? More than the sand of the sea or the stars in the sky. And that, and that through his descendants, the entire world will be blessed. A, uh, God eventually opens Sarah's womb, right? Uh, for some reason, I'm having struggling here. Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. Is that right? Okay. At the ripe old age of 90, God opened Sarah's womb. Right? Abraham and Sarah had tried to fulfill the promises of God in their own way, right? That's, uh, Sarah had given uh, her handmaid, uh, Hagar, to, uh, to Abraham to father a child with, which the child's name is Ishmael. Right? Come, what come of Ishmael is nothing but trouble. Uh, the, the Middle East is still fighting in turmoil b- because of that decision, talking about choices. And so anyways, the time comes when finally they believe God. God opened the womb of Sarah. Uh, Sarah is born Isaac. We fast forward a number of years, and i got to be careful, I don't get, take too long doing, telling you, filming in on background, but anyways, um, uh, eventually Isaac and his wife uh, have a, uh, ha, have, actually they have uh, 12 sons, but um, Joseph is the one that we want to focus on for a minute, or I mean uh, Jacob, has Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob. And his wives have 12 sons. Joseph is the one that I'm wanting to get to and focus on for just a minute. Uh, I I will say this, that there is a point. Jacob is, uh, uh, he can be a bit of a rascal. Uh, right? One place he's referred to as a worm. Uh, but anyways, uh, God wrestles with Jacob all night and changes his name to Israel. Out of them come the nation of Israel. Right? That's, that's the founding. That's where it begins. It's not correct to say, just to say that Israel is the descendants of Abraham. They, I mean, that is correct, but that's not completely correct. The nation of Israel is the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. That's where your nation comes from. The 12 tribes is the sons of Jacob or Israel. That's where it comes from. Jacob's favorite son, uh, Joseph, right? That's a mistake that you shouldn't make, a favorite child. It it causes some problems. You can read about that in the last quarter of of the book of Genesis, everything having to do with that. But... uh, joseph's brothers is finally had enough of joseph and they sell him into slavery right into egypt thinking they have finally done away with him they go back and they tell uh their father that his son joseph is dead right i mean they don't say well he's dead but they take him a bloody coat right what else is he to assume <laughs> right joseph's famous coat of many colors the one that uh that jacob had given him the boys bring it back and say Don't know what happened, but we found this, Dad. Well, he assumes that Joseph is dead. Joseph goes to Egypt as a slave. Joseph winds up in prison. God takes a bad situation and makes good come out of it. Joseph ends up, uh, after a set of events unfold, Joseph ends up the number two person in charge. And all of Egypt. Jo- when drought comes, Joseph, really it's God through Joseph, is who is responsible for saving the nation. But not only Egypt is saved because of what God has done through Joseph. But Joseph's family back in the land that Canaan land right that's what it was called then we know it is Israel today. But in Canaan land. They go to Egypt looking for food because they hear there's food there. And so there's a reuniting that happens, right? Uh, uh, Jacob in his old age, or Israel in his old age, the son that he thought was dead is alive. So we see, and, and they go and they're given the land of Goshen, right? And that's some of the most fertile, best land there, right? That, because they're shepherds and go there to, to, to be shepherds. And so anyways, by this point... Jacob and his family, or what is the future nation of Israel, goes into Egypt, 70. 70 people is how many they are that go in there. They spend 430 years. Bible tells us that there comes along a Pharaoh that does not remember Joseph and what he has done. The nation of Israel is no longer there as um, special guests. But now they're there as slaves. 430 years. 70. After 430 years, the Bible says that God heard the cry of His people. He uses, without going into all the details, we've moved into the book of Exodus now. God uses Moses, right? Moses has got quite a story, and I didn't come to preach on Moses, but God uses Moses to lead them out of Egypt. Now you think about it. Egypt has a slave force of two million people. I am not very smart. I don't pretend to be. But I look, you know, they look at those uh, pyramids and they say, how in the world did that people do that then when they done it? I can't help but wonder if maybe it was a little Hebrew slave labor that God was blessing that done what no other man could do. Makes sense to me. I don't know. Anyways, think about it for a minute. If you're Pharaoh, you've got two million slaves that work harder than anyone else in the land and build things that no one else can build. You don't want to get rid of them. They get afraid, he gets afraid that they're going to be strong enough that if there's ever an invader that comes in, that they would, enjoy, would join up with the invader and therefore conquer them. So he's nervous about them. That's why he's wanting to try to keep their population down. But he's also enjoying the fruit of their labors. The benefits of, of, of their work of what they're doing. So, when God goes to use Moses to lead them out, There is a whole big set of events that happen, right? There is a whole series of miracles. There is a whole series of plagues that take place, and Pharaoh's heart keeps hardening, and Pharaoh will say, go, and then he'll say, no, you know, he doesn't want to let them go. Finally, the the tenth plague, what it accumulates at. That's what we know and recognize as what's become and celebrates the Passover. What it is, is it's, it's the death of the firstborn, of all those who were not covered by the blood, right? That Passover lamb is a type of Christ, and, and we see a picture of Christ and all that, but it tells us on that night, right, that the death angel come, and if he did not see the blood from the Passover lamb on the doorpost and over the top of the door of the home, the firstborn, man and animal alike. He took from the poorest in the land to Pharaoh's own firstborn. That's when Pharaoh says, get out. Get out. I've had enough. Get out. So what do they do? They go to all the neighbors and they 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 they, they it, the the word says they borrowed, but it, it's borrowed like brother borrows things. What he means is, is, give me, you know. I'm gonna borrow it, but you'll never see it again. They went to all their neighbors and borrowed their jewelry and left with it. That's what built the tabernacle and all the gold that you see plated to everything. It was the Egyptians' gold. I think it was the wages for all the years that they were in slavery. God was making things right. They leave. Listen to me, that's miracles. The water's been turned to blood. I, I mean, there is. we could go through them plagues one after another, miracle after miracle. Listen to me, somebody throws down a stick and it turns into a snake. That's enough to get my attention. You ain't going to have to kill Jake to get my attention. They've gone through all this. They've witnessed all this. God brings them out, delivers them out. They're on their way out of of Egypt. They are headed to the promised land. When they get to the Red Sea, right, Pharaoh changes his mind again, right? He, He lets them go once they get out. The next day, Pharaoh's thinking about it, and Pharaoh's... We've made a mistake. He gets his army together. Let's go get them slaves and round them up and bring them back. So he chases them all the way when they get to the Red Sea. Right? As the saying goes, they got the back to the wall. Well, their back was to the Red Sea, right? One side was the Red Sea, the other side was Pharaoh's army. The people begin to get upset. They begin to uh, complain to Moses. They said, What have you done? Have you brought us out here to kill us? Was there not enough graves in all of Egypt? You had to bring us out here. <laughs> so what does God do? God parts the, parts the Red Sea. God halts, blinds, impedes Pharaoh's army long enough for the Israelites to cross the Red Sea. And I know they got all kinds of silly explanations of how that happened. But listen to me. The Bible says they they crossed over on dry ground. Uh, not through a ankle-deep swamp or a muddy mess. God parted the waters and dried the ground. It was a miracle. It was supernatural. You understand what the definition of supernatural is, right? There's a natural order of things and a natural way that things happen. God made the, made the creation set it in order. That is the, in, in the way things happen, in the way that we understand it. That is the natural order of things. But anytime God intervenes, that is a supernatural event event and when God intervenes and it's a supernatural event he can do whatever he wants however he wants and that's just the way it is and that's what he did he parted the Red Sea they crossed over on dry ground but when Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army tried to follow them God drowned them all they go through all of that right They, they go to the foot of Mount Sinai They have the 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 interactions with God. Moses goes up on the mount. I mean, there's a lot of things that happen there, all right? They've been through all of that. Now, we're all the way, let me he's given the law, the you know, the tabernacle has been, you know, the instructions. It's all been built. I mean, they have seen miracle after miracle after miracle. They have seen water come from the rock, you name it. And God sends them. And I was always kind of confused because if you read in Deuteronomy, it's, it's worded a little bit different. It's getting at a different point. But here in Numbers, if you go to the first of chapter 13, he says, send you out 12 spies. One is a head from each family, okay, of the 12 tribes. Send them to spy out the land. He, he's saying, try me. Test me. See if it's not what I've promised. He's also testing. He's inviting them to test him, but he's testing them at the same time. What kind of report are they going to bring back? Are they going to be excited and ready to go, or is it going to scare them off? So they go into the promised land, right? The Canaan land. Uh, forty days and forty nights they are there spying out the land. They see as I read to you. It is truly a land flowing with Milk and honey. Uh, not that literally there's rivers of milk or honey, but it was kind of a saying that they used. You know, milk and honey—that was that was the food of of kings of the ultra rich. You know, you—I guess some could even say that's the that would be the food of the gods. You know, and so, anyways, I mean, that's how that's the, you know that's how it's viewed. You know, and so, anyways, so what they're trying to say is that the, that this is—I mean, this is a good fertile land. Right? The, the, the cluster of grapes they bring back is like nothing that any of them had ever seen before. The figs was just absolutely unbelievable. It was truly a land flowing with milk and honey. But it is also a land of a fierce people. There is many, many different tribes or nations of people, right? They're fortified cities, walled uh, uh, cities. Uh, these guys are big. I mean, you know, it even ends with he saying, we are like giant, or I mean, we are like grasshoppers. They're like giants, and we're like grasshoppers. Now, the thing that stands out to me, and I'm, I'm getting ready to get into it, is Caleb's response. Caleb, I mean, they give the report. Nobody disagrees (laughs) what is there. It is the choices, right? If you read this and you study this, there is no disagreement by anybody on what the land is like. Even when they say there's giants there, Caleb doesn't say, oh, well, that's an exaggeration. Them old boys are pretty big, but they're not giants. No, there is no disagreement on the description. But Caleb makes some choices. And that's what I want to preach to you about tonight. First of all, Caleb chose to believe what God said over what he saw. Right? Caleb saw the same thing the rest of them saw. Right? There is no doubt fortified cities. These are a mighty people. In their natural state. They could not conquer this. They could not defeat this. They had had no training as warriors. This was not a foreign army that was well equipped and well trained moving in. Right? Of the two million, the majority of them are women and children. They've got all the old men too. When we get fighting age men, we're getting weighed down in the number. And these are slaves. All they know how to do is make bricks. They can build. They don't know how to fight not like a trained army. The fortified city is extremely hard. The walled city is extremely hard to take. It takes takes a well-trained, equipped, supplied army led by a general who is practically a a genius when it comes to tactics to be able to take a well-fortified city. Not a bunch of slaves and farmers. Caleb chose to believe what God had said instead of what Caleb with his own eyes had saw. Because Caleb believed when, I'm talking when others saw giants. Because Caleb, now listen to me, because Caleb believed God. When others saw giants, Caleb saw God. When others saw cities with high walls, Caleb could see cities that were reduced to rubble. When others saw a dangerous enemy, Caleb only saw a defeated enemy. When others saw only obstacles, Caleb saw opportunities. When the ten spies saw in the land... uh, Actually, it was what they saw in the land of Canaan, right? Uh, That caused them to forget what God had said. But instead, it was Caleb uh, who chose to believe what God said about the land. After all, uh, God had told them that they would go in and they would possess it. And Caleb was completely, fully content, uh, content and confident that God could do what he had promised. He was confident uh, uh, that God uh, would make good on his word. And let me tell you something, church, tonight. You are standing on sure ground when you stand on what God says. Uh, Caleb chose uh, to rest on the word of, him, uh, of God, right? The one who cannot lie. Caleb chose to focus on God's power rather than the problems that we're in front of him. Now you start thinking about that. Isn't that a mistake that we make? We focus on the problems that we can see instead of the power of God which we can't see. We focus on the seen instead of the unseen. But you see, Caleb was able to look beyond himself and his problems. He saw God's power. Caleb uh, chose to uh, really... He did not choose to ignore his problems, but instead he chose to see his problems from God's perspective. You see, from God's perspective it's no problem whatsoever. Something, we encounter something, right? We have a problem, a tragedy, whatever, it comes into our life, and, we, uh, and if we're not careful, the only way we'll look at it is, the, is from our own perspective and our own sight. And we see it as a problem. We see it as an obstacle. But to God, it's not a problem. And it's not an obstacle. I would say the real difference between Joshua and Caleb and the other ten spies was in their perspective. It was how they looked at things it was not what they saw because they all saw the same thing but it's how they viewed it it's how they saw it the two faithful spies uh, looked at the task ahead from the perspective of of who God was right and what he was able to do right their God was the one who had triumphed over Egypt right he, their God is the one who had triumphed over uh, Pharaoh it was their God uh, who had done the impossible it was their God uh, who had uh, brought the across the, uh, the part of the Red Sea so they could cross over on the dry ground, right? But you see the ten, the ten spies, they had forgot all about that. They were just looking at the problem ahead and they saw things. Uh, they saw the task at hand uh, from their own uh, abilities, right? To, uh, their own ability to, uh, to accomplish it or not to accomplish it. And the giants of the land were too much for them to handle, for them to tackle. And on their own, that's exactly right. They wouldn't have been able to take the land. The ten spies chose to see the high walls of the cities. They chose to see these great, mighty uh, city-states is really what they were. They chose to see the tall giants of the land, right? They they chose to see these things, right? They looked at at these things that were seen instead of looking at the uh, things that were unseen. They were looking at the visible instead of looking at the invisible. As I mentioned a minute ago, Caleb did not dispute these facts with them at all. But you see, he didn't draw the same conclusion that they drew. The ten spies were looking at things through their natural eyes. How different does the same facts look when you look at them from the right perspective? You see, the ten spies looked at this situation as if it was all about them and their resources and their abilities and their strength. The ten spies is, like I said a second ago, is looking through it, their natural eyes. That's why they said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. Nobody is questioning that. That is a fact. That is the truth. They saw the problem. They saw the giants in the land in the walled cities. And they saw themselves as grasshoppers. Meaning they were totally unable to meet the challenge. Take that and compare that to what Joshua and Caleb, what their response was. Right? They saw things through God's eyes. The people of Canaan. See, in their perspective, is just the opposite. The people of Canaan were like grasshoppers compared to God. Instead of comparing themselves to them, they're comparing, they're seeing it through God's eyes. They saw the same facts that the other ten saw, only they chose to see them from God's perspective. They chose to see how small, well, let me just say this, we, we have the choice. We can choose to see how small we are compared to those giants. Or we can choose to look at how small those giants are compared to God. I want you to notice that Joshua and Caleb, and I've alluded towards this already, but they did not deny there was a problem. In fact, they acknowledged it, but they were unmoved by it, unwavered by it. They were not discouraged by it. The focus of their hearts was towards God. They saw that they were well able to overcome the problem because God was with them. And one last thing that I want to point out to you tonight is Caleb chose not to be influenced by those around him. He was in the minority big time. And he chose not to be influenced by them. You see, he chose to do the influencing rather than to be influenced. He chose to lead others instead of just following the crowd. Let me ask you the question tonight. You start thinking about your own life, right? We need to start bringing this thing home. Do you influence or are you the type that is influenced? Me and Jennifer have tried to teach our family, our kids. And of course we've tried to live this in our own lives also. But we've tried to instill from them from the time that they started school, right? From the time they started school or started preschool and then school, right? They were going to be around some kids who didn't have the same upbringing that they had, didn't have the same values that they had, that that we had instilled in them. And they were going to have to make choices. And they were going to have to choose who they were going to spend time with, who they were going to hang out, who they were going to call their friend, and who they weren't. And the one thing that we told them over and over and over again, whatever relationship that you're in, whatever friendship you're in, whoever you're hanging out with, make sure that you're the one that's doing the influencing instead of the one that is being influenced. Make sure you're the one who is setting the godly example instead of being, instead of, instead of uh, you being influenced. By their ungodly example. Now listen, um, there's a lot of disagreement in the church world uh, about this very thing right now. And yes, we're not to be isolationists. We're not to separate ourselves. I'm not saying that you can't have any ungodly friends. Absolutely. I mean, we need to reach as many people for the cause of Christ as we possibly can. But the thing that you've got to check, that you've got to make sure, is who is doing the influencing in that situation? Are you influencing them for God? Are you influencing them for right? Are you having a positive effect on them? Or are they having a negative effect on you? Are they influencing you for the world and the world's values? That is where you've got to draw the line. That's where you've got to to guard yourself, right? You've got to guard your soul, your your salvation, however you want to say that. Not to some person that can come along and steal it, but you can sure allow yourself to be deceived. You sure can allow yourself to be influenced until you may start making the wrong uh, decisions. And the next thing you know, uh, you are not even following the Lord anymore. Far too many allow others to influence them to do wrong rather than them influencing others to do right. Listen to me. Don't sit here and think, oh, well, this is good for the kids. Listen, it is for every single one of us, every one of you. I don't care if you're 10 or if you're 80. You are either influencing people or you are being influenced by people. You know what? Now this is just a Justin's thought for just a moment. But I actually think after reading and studying this, I actually think that Caleb influenced Joshua. Joshua does act. Now, we always say Caleb and Joshua, and we really think about Joshua the most because Joshua ends up being Moses' successor, and he's the one that leads them into Canaan land. He's the one, whenever you get to, you know, after Deuteronomy, you got the book of Joshua, and it's about him, you know, their conquest, leading them into the land of Canaan and them conquering and taking the land. And he's the one that, you know, God has picked to, to be, you know, take Moses' spot as their leader. And so we think about Joshua a lot. But if you look at this story, all through chapter 13, it, you know, Joshua is named as one of the ones that is that is going, right? He is the one that is of the, um, let's see, he's the tribe of Ephraim. He's the one that the spy that's going. But when they come back and give a report, Joshua actually doesn't say a word. It's Caleb that does all the talking. It is not until you get to chapter 14... In verse 6, and that's where it says, And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And then you go on and you can read about what they said and you know, the rest of their response and all that. But Joshua is not mentioned until then. I almost see Joshua, now this is just my opinion. The Bible does not say one way or the other. But I almost see Joshua kind of just, when, whenever they come back and give their report, and Caleb is is making the case for them to go, I see Joshua just kind of taking it all in. I actually think that what Caleb did influenced Joshua for right. I I, I don't know that for sure. That's just kind of the way that it looks looks to me. Regardless, my point is, we are always influencing. And there, you'll have the opportunity. They'll come, the time, the place where you can, where, you where know, either you're going to take a stand for God or not. You better take a stand for God. You better not miss that opportunity. There might be a Joshua there in the crowd that stands up with you. You know, talking about, we got to be careful because we're always influencing. I heard, a, I, I heard a joke, a couple jokes that I thought was pretty good that I think kind of illustrates this. There was a mother who, took her young son shopping with her after uh, all day in all these different department stores and you know char- you know buying all you know doing all this shopping and stuff like that there was a clerk in one of the stores who thought the little boy was just real cute and handed him a lollipop and his mom being a good mom of course turns to the little boy and says all right now what do you say A little boy pulls the lollipop out of his mouth and says, Just charge it. Like it or not, Mom had had some influence on him that day. He'd been shopping and she looks like she'd been charging everything and and, uh, she'd been influencing him. Another mother was taking her little boy to school. Now this was something out of the ordinary. Normally dad is the one that took this little fella to school every day, walked him to school. But on this one particular morning, dad had to go to work really early. So mom was the one that was walking him to school. The little boy on the whole trip there, The little boy keeps looking around and looking around. And it's obvious he's looking around and he's looking and he's looking and he's looking. Finally, about halfway there or or more, the little boy pipes up and says, Mom, where are all the idiots? The mother is surprised. (laughs) And she responds, "What in the world do you mean?" And the little boy says, "Well, usually Dad and I see at least three or four idiots on the way to school every day." I think Dad had been doing some influencing there that maybe was not so good. I, I thought that I, I found that particularly funny because I've got to watch myself. I, I, <laughs> I can I can relate to that one. My point of that, I mean, I know they're corny jokes, but my point of that is that we are either influencing or we're being influenced. So often, we will allow others to influence us um, to do things that we had not to do, right? I mean, we can let others influence us to to... to you know, to keep our mouth shut when we should speak up for the Lord. We can let others influence us to to not go to church. Instead, it should be the other way around. We should be influencing others to come and worship the Lord. Uh, We often allow others to persuade us instead of us persuading them. And so my question to you tonight is, will you encourage others or are you going to be discouraged by others? the choice is yours to make if you're a a christian the lord jesus said that you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world both of those are illustrations and jesus is dealing with the impact that a christian life is to have on his or her society, on the people that are around you, as the salt of the earth, we are to um, permeate our society. Right? We are to we are we are to have an effect that just keeps working through it. As the as the light of the world, we're to we're to shine that light. Right? Light into darkness. We're to radiate in our society. We're to be the salt that combats the the world's corruption. We're to be the light that dispels the world's darkness. We are to influence the world instead of being influenced by the world. I read a thing just a little while back about a man by the name of Dr. John. uh, I believe you say his last name, Getty, G-E-D-D-I-E. Anyways, he went to this island. uh, uh, It's off the coast of Australia. It's in the South Pacific Ocean. He went there in 1948 as a Christian missionary. Not 19, 1848 as a Christian missionary. And he worked there for the Lord for 24 years. He spent the rest of his life there as a missionary. There was a monument that they erected years later on the island to him. In memory of him. And on it are inscribed these words When he landed in 1848, there was no Christians. When he left in 1872, there was no heathen. Right? This was a man like Caleb. He chose to influence others instead of being influenced by others. I told you when we started that we're the sum total of all our choices. What deliberate choices are you going to make? It's not in life's chances, but it's in its choices that joys come to the heart of each one of us. Our life is shaped by our choices. Our eternity is determined by the choice that we make today. So what choices have you made? Have you chosen to follow Jesus? If you have, praise the Lord. As you go out into the world and you leave here, what choices are you making? Are you influencing the world for Christ? Are you being salt? Are you being light? When you go to work tomorrow or, or wherever you might go and interact with people this week, who's having the influence there? Are you? Or are you letting somebody of the world have the influence? The choice is ours to make. Who are we going to be? Are we going to be a Caleb or are we going to be one of the other ten spies? Would you stand to your feet I want to open the altar and I want to give you a chance to come tonight. Spirit of God is dealing with you. Would you come tonight? If you've got a need, if you've got a heavy burden, would you come tonight? Whatever it is, you know, would you come tonight? Uh, Don't miss this opportunity.